welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at a text that we've kind of talked about already when we talked about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I want to uh, look at this passage, there's a few verses here, and then just talk through it this morning, um, and we'll go from there. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, it says this, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the scripture we're going to talk through today. So Paul, in verse 15, is, is uh, challenged the Ephesians church to take everyday moments in ordinary life and turn them into moments of intentionality. That's that first verse. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. He says, live intentionally by the course of wisdom rather than foolishness. So he's giving us this picture, live a life of wisdom rather than a life of foolishness, which is found in the Old Testament wisdom literature. We see that there's two paths, the way of righteousness, the way of wisdom, or the way of destruction, the way of the fool. And Paul knows that Christians in Ephesus were surrounded in a culture that was uh, of overconsumption of alcohol, sex, religious, and political propaganda. Pagan practices and cultural norms of indulging in appetites of pleasure, insisting on lying and cheating and living for themselves, which is what he means by the days are evil. And he knows that this culture is in opposition to living as apprentices to Jesus. So living as an apprentice to Jesus requires intentionality of your time and energy. So Ephesus was this epicenter for a pagan culture, a pagan lifestyle. And Paul says, as you live in this culture that is dedicated to other deities and gods, be intentional with your time. Interesting, right? Live as someone who's wise, making the most of every opportunity. And, he's, and he gives us this command. He says, don't get drunk off wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, the translation we've talked about, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's this active present verb. Keep on being filled. Be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit and living as a Spirit-filled church is connected to lifestyle choices of individual believers. Very practical. Very practical. So, verse 18. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So being Spirit-filled is a countercultural lifestyle. Being Spirit-filled is countercultural to the norms of our present day. 
So verse 18, we can just read, okay, what Paul's saying in this moment is this, uh, this he's giving us a picture of spirit-filled life. It's, it's the opposite of being drunk, being under the influence of alcohol. And we, we all get that, right? We all understand, I get what he's saying. But, but underneath the layer of the command is this whole uh, first century context that we need to build this understanding around because drinking alcohol, there's all sorts of issues in first century that we don't have today. For example, in the first century, there wasn't a morality associated to drinking like there is today. Like we have laws and rules that, uh, that put um, perimeters or boundaries around the consumption of alcohol, Right? Like there's, there's a sense of moderation in our culture that we need to live by. Even if we're not Christian, we can't drive drunk. We can't be intoxicated in public. Now, in first century context, there were no such things as laws and moderation that were connected to morality. In fact, there were deities connected to alcohol, and you could connect to those pagan gods through the consumption and overconsumption of alcohol. And there's one God, Bacchus, or Dionysus, who was the God of wine. And the, the way you would consume alcohol was an act of worship. You would go to um, a party in the first century, and if there was alcohol, you would get drunk off the wine or the alcohol. You would overindulge in food, and when you threw up, you would just keep going because that's the only norm they had in their culture for partying. So Paul is telling these Christians who have this new understanding of reality, it's not all these other deities that we worship because there's only one God, Jesus, and there's a new way to live your life no longer as an Ephesian first, but as a Christian. And so cultural norms need to be transformed and challenged in your life. You thought alcohol consumption, getting drunk, was a way of life that connected to the gods that consumed you and filled you and connected you, connected you to another pagan reality. But actually, that leads just to, de to debauchery, which is destruction. Instead, as followers of Jesus, there's another way of life, and it's the spirit-filled life. It's being under the influence of an alternate reality, which is the spirit of God, God himself. So rather than engaging in cultural practices, engage in the new reality, which is the spirit of God who becomes your greatest influence. And if you remember when I talked about baptism in the Holy Spirit, um, that often we think being filled with the Spirit is like a cup of water that fills our cup. And we go into culture and we get filled by culture and then we more of the Spirit and it's like this dance. But that's not actually the, the reality of what the Scriptures speak of. What The better illustration is taking that cup, dipping it into the infinite ocean. That's baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you can imagine then taking that into culture and not being influenced by culture, but rather influencing culture through the presence of God everywhere you go, that's what Paul expects from followers of Jesus. Now, the alternative of being filled with wine is being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Contextually, I want to suggest that God's desire for us today is to not be under any influence other than the Spirit of God. So the question I have is, what has become the dominant influence in your life? 
What influences your daily decisions of how you spend your time? What, what influences the direction of life, the way you spend your resources, your money? What influences the values you live by, the habits you practice? Is it your relationships? Is it family members? Is it your friendships? Is it coworkers? Is it your past? Is it how you've been raised? Is, the, is it the country that you've been born into? Is it the pain of the past that you've endured? Is it the environment you've surrounded yourself in? Is it a celebrity that you've admired for many years? Is it the American dream? The unspoken upward mobility that everyone is a part of in this country? Is it fear? What influences you? What's the dominant influence in your life? If Paul were here today, I think he would speak differently than don't get drunk off wine to our culture. I think what he might say, one of the biggest things he would say is um, don't be under the influence of consumerism. We live in a culture of consumerism and what's so hard to speak, you know, we've talked about this a ton, but it's hard to speak about consumerism for lots of reasons. It's hard to speak about it because we all participate in it. We have to. You're gonna go out here and you're gonna go home and eat lunch or go out to eat and buy lunch and you're gonna consume goods. We, our society is built on consumerism. Now, to a degree that I think has become a toxic challenge to the way of God. I want to speak to this for a moment because consumerism is the insatiable desire for more, okay? And humans have built into our human heart a desire for more, and that desire is for God. We know Genesis 1, or Genesis 1 and 2 reveals that we are designed to live with this loving relationship with God, that desire to be connected to the source of life, but that desire has been hijacked by consumerism and big brands that just prey on the soul craving that you have to connect with God. We buy constantly. We live in a world where we are expected to purchase the newer, the bigger, the latest version. Um, this is how society and life exists, operates, and functions. Apple has become genius, nearly a trillion dollar. At one point, it was a trillion dollar company. I mean, Apple has produced a product that comes out every single year, and, and, and every year it's better than the year before, and every year there's something inside of us that says, I have to have the newer one. Now, that's the extreme, right? But that we do this all the time, whether it's with shoes, whether, whether it's with a hobby, whether it's with experiences, whether it's a new restaurant or food. We are constantly moving to get and consume more. This is how the world operates. It's our value. The, we are valued in modern society by the, our economic activity, our net worth. <laughs> and it's not an accident. Our society is, has been carefully constructed around this ideology that has become a way of life. We want more, we buy more. We constantly consume. We are on this journey of of consumption beyond anything else. And it's like we could say, yeah, Darren, I get what you're saying. I worship Jesus too. Hold on, I gotta buy this real quick. It's on sale. And it's hard because I, we live in this tension. We need to buy things. But I think what, we've, what I'm realizing more and more is that it's become so normal for us 
And here's what I, what I mean. Like I, I was thinking about this this week. I, I put on worship music this, this week on, um, through Pandora. And I was having this crazy worship experience at my house, praising God. And then an advertisement pops up. And at first I didn't think anything of it, but then I was like, wow, isn't this, isn't this crazy? That we could be enjoying things like worship and all of a sudden we're, we're thrusted into this cultural reality of consuming. You see, and what I realized in that moment is advertisement is to the consumer-filled life as worship is to the spirit-filled life. All the subtle ways we walk around being bombarded with, with average scrolling as we scroll through Instagram, pop-up advertisement. As we look online and research uh, WebMD, pop-up advertisement. As we drive down, listening to NPR or anything, pop-up advertisement. As we drive, we see pop-up advertisement. Everywhere we go, it's reminding us that our, our culture of devotion is purchasing more stuff. On after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, I keep calling it Good Friday, which is just obviously, <laughs> there's a kid. Black Friday, wake up in the morning, I'm doing my devotion, and I think, I have this thought, oh, today's Black Friday, I wonder what sales are out there, let me just go online, and all of a sudden, two minutes in on my phone, I'm on Amazon, looking at the cyber deals for like technology, and I realized, oh, this is what we do. This is what devotional life looks like to the way of consumerism. It's browsing, adding to my Amazon list. I'm devoting myself to the way of consumerism. Now, I'm, it, may sound, it may sound crazy to you what I'm saying, but I actually think this is the cultural norm that needs to be challenged in order to really engage in spirit-filled living. But I don't really, I don't ha it's not dialed, it's not 100%, this is just an idea. I'm like, it's not even close to being fully understood. I just have this idea, and there was a line like, advertisement is to the consumer-filled life as worship is to the spirit-filled life. This is what Paul will get after. There's nothing wrong with wine, there's nothing wrong with buying stuff, there's nothing wrong with social media or feeling comfortable and secure. Those are the things that you're after, unless they become the dominant influence of your life more than the spirit. And here's why. N.T. Wright says this in Surprised by Hope. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them dragging to the, uh, damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned 
and of those who live, whose lives they touch. We must learn to immerse ourselves in the ultimate reality, and that is God. Culture is no longer the primary environment of influence for us as Christians. We have to allow and, and practice and put ourselves under the influence of the Spirit of God. So Paul says, don't get drunk off wine. And so I say, don't be under the influence of anything other than the Spirit of God. Don't be under the influence of consumerism. Don't be under the influence of alcohol or weed. Don't be under the influence of social media or of political news. Don't be under the influence of the narratives of the world. Don't be under the influence of materialism. Don't be under the influence of the need for comfort. Don't be under the influence of your career. Don't be under the influence of anything else other than the Spirit of God. And then he commands us. He says, so keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he gives us five descriptions that are also practices. This is what a spirit-filled life will look like. This is what a spirit-filled church will look like. But this is also what uh, five practices to help you remain influenced under the Spirit. And he says this, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Singing and make, uh, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So five descriptions of the Spirit-filled church. Number one, speak or encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So it's worship. When you gather together as the body in homes or on Sunday or as followers, as brothers and sisters, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, you should be preparing in your individual walk with God so that when you come together, it's overflowing. This is a practice that we do. You know, you know what I think is so countercultural is this one, encouraging one another with truth. What we do is we just nitpick and criticize one another more than ever before. Like we are wired now by culture to to be critical of one another. The biting that I see on social media is exhausting. The tone, oh, you can read into it. I just know that if, if people are saying back and forth on online in person, it would, it would sound so differently. But this is what we do. We live in a culture uh, which is, do you remember back in the day when somebody would do something wrong and they'd put them in stocks and the, the town would come and throw cabbage at them and shame, shame, shame. We live in that same culture. It's just online now. It's shame-based culture. And Paul says one of the practices, one of the descriptions of a spirit-filled church person is that we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What's another description? Singing. Again, so countercultural. I grew up in a household where my mom was always singing. Always singing worship. It was to the point where she was sick in the hospital, I remember her singing worship. She taught me to sing, to praise Jesus always. In my house, ask my wife. Is my wife in here? She's, she's in the, nurse, the, the mother's room with the kid. She, I'm singing all the time. I don't even know the words to this song. I wish she was here. She could tell. It's like, Peu Jesu. It's like a Latin song. What is it? Um, Peu Jesu. Do you know what I'm saying? Should I put it on? Exactly, you don't know. Babe, where are you at? Come on, run in here. 
I don't even know the Latin. I'm singing it nonstop. It's stop. It's a Latin song of praising Jesus. It's like an old hymn. I can't stop since I've heard it. It's been ridiculous. But I'm just always singing. But this is what Christians, this is what we should be doing. Like, have you ever met somebody? Okay. Have you ever met someone who, do you know who I'm talking about? The people that are regularly singing songs around your life, like your coworker? Like, are they not full of joy? Like, just think, the person that's always singing in your life, unless they're like emo, stuck in their, you know, dashboard confessional. <laughs> Your hair is everywhere. Like, right? Like that person, they don't exist anymore. But what we have, <laughs> I was that person. But I, but praise, singing to each other, singing songs, making music with our hearts to the Lord. Making music with our hearts to the Lord. So what Paul's doing is he's giving us descriptions of a spirit-filled life, but he's giving us practices of how to remain in the presence of God, how to remain in the spirit-filled life. And then he says, giving thanks to God for all things. Thanksgiving is the primary point of entry into a meaningful life. Let me say that again. Thanksgiving is the primary point of entry into the, meaning, into the meaningful life. You see, these are all worship-oriented practices. Four of the five. I'll, show you, I'll talk about the fifth in a second. But you need to see worship is evidence of a spirit-filled life. In the same way that buying more stuff is evidence of a consumer-filled life, Worship is the natural overflow of someone who is spirit-filled. Remember we talked about there are observable characteristics for a spirit-filled person? When the, in Acts chapter 6, they're looking for leaders to serve um, the widows by passing out food. They look for people that are full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And we said that there are observable characteristics of a spirit-filled person. One of the spirit, uh, and then we can talk about what that looks like, but one of the observable characteristics is that they're worshipers. Are you a worshiper? And the answer is yes. Every human is a worshiper. The question is, are you worshiping the right God? I love you guys in that row right now. I just feel, are you guys YWAMers or something? Circuit riders, YWAMers. I, I know when YWAM's in the house because the love is outrageous. I spoke at YWAM a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, I'm just going to record the response. I'd be like, turn to Matthew. Wow, Matthew. Oh, Matthew's my favorite. <laughs> Worship leads us into the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit leads us into Worship. It's just a cycle. And worship is the greatest catalyst for growing in our capacity for more of the presence of God. If there's one practice that will help you grow in the spirit-filled life, it's worship. And not just individual worship, although that's important, but corporate worship, coming together to sing. You see, I know we live in, in this culture that worships individualism and our personal preference and experiences. And most of us want to show up late for a variety of reasons. But once a week, the body of Christ at Garden Church comes together for an hour and a half and maybe an hour and 45 minutes to come together to remind ourselves of why we are here and who is God. And we do that through singing and worshiping God, through teaching, through praying for each other and through fellowship. It's all worship, but we do it together. And Paul would say, you should be coming bringing your songs from the week. Whether it's songs of lament. I was with a, f a couple here that's going through an insane crisis. 
And it's like all we could do is weep with them this week. And they're on my heart all day. And I'm trying to like how, all I can do is pray and bring them in my heart to the presence of God. That's what I've been doing. It's like holding space. And I'm just like worshiping. And then as I worship, I'm like, what are they thinking? How are they feeling? But when we come together, we bring our lament. Where the heck are you, God? But I'm going to worship. We have to remind ourselves of what is true. Nothing is more important to challenge the cultural-filled life than to engage in intentional practice of private and corporate worship. Because worship recalibrates our soul to what is ultimately real. Romans 12 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of who God is, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Offer your existence back to God. And don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect. Well, there's this idea that as far as of Jesus, we receive the grace he's given us, but worship is learning to practice singing in our private lifestyle, to practice offering, giving, giving thanks, speaking to one another with psalms, but it's corporate worship, but it's offering our entire existence as one giant worship back to God. Worship is a way of recalibrating your soul to what is ultimately true. You see, this is why it's so important. What I've learned is from my mom, honestly, is that when I'm anxious, when I'm scared, when I'm obsessed with myself, and when I get angry and off, worship helps me to remember who God is and who I am. So when I'm struggling with insecurity, I'm no longer a slave to fear. It doesn't matter how I sing. That's true. I am a child of God. I need worship songs written by spirit-filled worshipers to remind me of what's ultimately true. And I need to come and sing them because when I go back on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and when it's dark and I'm in despair, when I'm at the ER a couple weeks ago with Ezra because he's not breathing and I'm having a flashback to when he was six weeks old in the same hospital, in the same ER, doctors say stuff like brain, brain damage. They talk about breathing issues and we, we didn't know what was going on. Five days in the hospital, PTSD. When I'm there, now a few years later, I'm right back to that original experience filled with fear, filled with chaos, filled with anxiety, doubt. I have to say, bless the Lord on my soul. I want to be singing at the end of the day in this darkness. I stayed up for two days when Ezra was first in the hospital that first time praying. I have to be reminded of what's true, that he is ultimately the truth. I was singing in the hospital this time, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. As I walk into darkness, as I feel afraid, I speak back to the lies and I remind myself of who is ultimately true. This is the discipline of worship. I need to put my heart and my mind aligned with what is true because what, otherwise, if I'm left to my own, left on my own, it's my fear, it's my anxiety, it's my doubt, it's my uncertainty, it's the culture that has more reign in my life than the Lord Jesus Christ. When I feel spiritual opposition, this is how I fight my battles, right? You know who they are already, so that there it is. They're going to teach us something. That's how I find my battles. When you feel you're walking into it, he prepares a tale. I was meditating on Psalm 23 at the hospital. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and my cup overflows. This is a battle scene. We're surrounded by enemies. And God's like, let's have a meal. I'm just gonna pour it out. And you're just gonna, you're just gonna be with me as I provide abundantly in the presence. The opposition doesn't go away, but your perspective changes because you know who's with you. It's not an army that comforts you. It's the presence of God that comforts you. Psalm 23. Worship is to faith as fuel is to fire. This is why worship has to be a priority in the life of a follower of Jesus. We need to realign our worship to God. Five descriptions of a spirit-filled church, Paul says. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making music with our hearts to the Lord, giving thanks to God for all things and then point four, I'm sorry, four points on worship. And then the fifth description, the fifth practice, probably the most amazing in this cultural moment. And we always read it, and it's right under, in my Bible, it says, instructions for Christian households. But actually, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 21 and 22 are all connected, and there's no, there's no breaking up of categories. It just flows naturally for Paul. Don't get drunk off wine. Be filled with spirit. Practice worship. And then it goes into this other thing. It says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the fifth discipline. This is the fifth picture. Practice description of a spirit-filled life in a spirit-filled church. Mutual submission to one another in meaningful community. That the marker of a spirit-filled church is that the spirit empowers us to live in healthy relationships. Just pause there for a moment. We can talk about warm fuzzies and healing and prophecy. We can talk about speaking in tongues. We can talk about spirit filled, uh, spirit fills us to lead on mission. But what Paul does here is as you keep on being filled with the spirit, as you learn to worship, what the spirit then does is the spirit empowers you to live healthy with one another in a community of diversity. Think about what I'm saying right now as you think about the political upheaval we see right now and the anger and outrage on all sides. What, what the Spirit comes to do is teach us how to live like Jesus did, lay down our lives for one another. The word submit in Greek is this military term, which, which is a combination of two words. Uh, to place in order is one word, and the other is under. So it's to place yourself under. To submit is to place yourself under or to give allegiance. Allegiance. This is a military where that soldiers would submit themselves under a commanding officer. So what Paul does, he says, in church life, the spirit-filled church, the predominant posture of every disciple to every other disciple is to place the well-being of yourself under the well-being of others. The Spirit empowers us to model the Jesus-filled life, the, the, the life that Jesus modeled by allowing us, teaching us to place our well-being under the well-being of others. Philippians 2 says, have the mind of Christ. He did not see himself as equal with God, but emptied himself. It's, this is the posture that we as disciples are supposed to live, that actually when we come together, it's never about what you need or your preference. You lay them under the preferences and needs of your brothers and sisters next to you. Think about that right now. How countercultural is that to everything in your life? 
that what Jesus teaches us is actually it's not about you. And I think it's brilliant what Paul does because it's, it's a revolution. And why is this so revolutionary? Why is, because what he does is he's, he's like, okay, the, the way the church is gonna operate is we submit to one another out of reverence for, for Christ. We lay our lives down for one another. And then he goes and he says, husbands or wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And then he talks about parents. This is how you do it. And he talks about slaves and masters. And there's a lot of confusion about that, but essentially slave, uh, slave trade movement in Ephesus was the, like, the dominant workforce of its time. Okay, and it's not like slavery today. It was like indentured servants. And there's all sorts of counterculture, cultural things that we could talk about why Paul doesn't speak to abolishing slavery. But it was, it was more like workplace. So you could see Paul saying, okay, how you relate to one another, how husbands live with, with their wives and wives to their husbands, how parents interact with their kids and their families. And then it goes into the workplace. And what you see happening is a spirit-filled life moves to a spirit-filled church, moves to spirit-filled families, moves to spirit-filled workplaces and communities, moves to the reconciliation and renewal of all things. And it all starts with how you worship. It all starts with you saying, I'm not going to be consumed in the cultural norms or under the influence of social media, under the influence of my career, under the influence of alcohol, under the influence of money and possessions. Instead, I'm going to keep on being filled. How do I do worship, through discipline, through choosing to make the most of every opportunity? And then it's going to go into your relationships. Then it's going to go into your marriage. Then it's going to go into your parenting and your workplace and then your communities. And all of a sudden, God's creations restored through the church. That's the plan. Who you worship and what you do with your worship is so important. Real quick on this. What, I'll, actually, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip this great, great little caveat, but don't worry about that. You don't need to know. But the point, <laughs> let's just focus here. The presence of God is everything for the church. And I want to just land there and invite you to worship. I want to invite you to identify the things in your life that are influencing you right now and offer them back to God and then ask him to train you, to teach you, to, through the power of his Holy Spirit, empower you to learn to live under his influence all the time. That's one thing. Second thing, church, when we come together, can we come together to worship? I, I just want to ask you to do your best to come early. For an hour and a half, we're going to worship God as the body. 9, 15, 11, 15. Come on time. Get here so that we can sing our songs. I know it's hard. I know it's like I have two kids. One, I come early. My wife comes out. It's, it's man, I get it. Some of you are tired because you work late or you were out late. That's a different story. Make the most. <laughs> Whatever it is, just be here and worship. Um, and uh, just keep on being filled. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.